Let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We have covered three sentences from verse 3 down through verse 14. I hope that you understand those three sentences. I entitled the first section, verses 3 through 6, which is one sentence of God's eternal operations before the world began as accepted and adopted. Because that's two of the primary things that God elected us and predestinated us unto. Verses 7 through 12 I have entitled Redemption and Inheritance. And then verses 13 and 14, purchased and sealed. I hope that you understand these three sentences and you have embraced them. You're able to teach them, explain them, and defend them. They're wonderful words and they're clear and powerful declarations of the doctrine of salvation that we believe. In verse 12, that we should be to the praise of His glory, who first trusted in Christ, the apostle his fellow laborers, and the Jews were the first to believe the gospel because the gospel went to them first. The uh, pronouns all the way from verse 3 through verse 12 are all in the plural first person because Paul's including himself along with the Ephesian saints from verse 3 all the way down unto this point where he makes a distinction. So that in verse 12, it's we in the first person. In verse 13, it's ye in the second person, distinguishing himself and the Jewish men that came with him to preach from the Ephesian Gentile audience. It's pretty interesting to follow all the pronouns back through verse 3 to see the first person, we, us, we, us, we, us, and then to see this distinction of the gospel having come to the Gentiles, which Paul will elaborate on in great depth more than anywhere else in chapters 2 and 3, that that gospel was brought to the Gentiles as well, and he was the chosen servant to do that. When we look at that 13th verse, which starts the third sentence, we find that he is referring to the practical phase of salvation, which from your standpoint would be over here. We have the eternal phase, the legal phase. Eternal phase is in that first section predominantly. Then in that section, second section or second sentence, we have the legal phase or Christ's redemptive work by His blood. And then we have an eternal inheritance mentioned in there as well. And that third section is the belief of the gospel, which is the practical phase of salvation that follows from eternal, legal, and vital that precede it. Now in this practical phase of salvation, which He will explain in more detail, has to follow... The vital phase in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. He will explain that vital phase of salvation where we are quickened or regenerated or resurrected or raised from death unto life in our inner man. But in this 13th and 14th verse is the belief of the gospel. In whom ye also trusted, I preached it to you, you believed it when you heard the word of truth. Paul was there for three years. Acts chapter 20 tells us, you believed the truth, the gospel of your salvation. After you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. And so we have an order given to us, and the order is regeneration over here, then belief of the truth, then being sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Paul tells us very clearly that the sealing of the Holy Spirit of promise is after we believe. And we know from the rest of Scripture and from chapter 2 that believing is after being regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. Raising us from death and trespasses and sins to believe the gospel. And he's called our seal. The seal is not our regeneration The seal is something that follows our faith. And that is a personal indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit to mark us and give us the power and to show the proof that we are indeed the children of God. It does not add to our position in heaven because that was determined by election and predestination. 
by Christ's death on the cross, and by regeneration which we're given a nature like God's in that great spiritual creation. Then we believe, and in a practical phase of salvation, we have added to us a mark, a signet seal of Almighty God in the wax of our melted spirits by the power of His Spirit and our believing the truth of the Gospel. We are given the promised Holy Spirit, His presence, God's presence with us that we can live out the Christian life. It's a mark upon us. So we're different from others. And it follows our faith. And so last Lord's Day, and many of you appreciated a couple of things, the varied ministries of the Holy Spirit. And I thank you for the encouragement and for the joy that you had hearing those things. Then you were thankful for the clarification about that sealing, that it was not part of regeneration because it follows our faith. We get an added measure of the Holy Spirit personally working in us and with us, which marks us as the children of God. And then that personal Holy Spirit is also called the earnest of our inheritance because we should look at it as a performance bond paid for by God that He will complete the entire work of salvation on our behalf. This this passage is impossible to preach, right? And I wish you all, I hope you all understand that with me. It is called the unsearchable riches of Christ. It is called the unspeakable gift of God. How are we supposed to tell it? You know, I don't even like going beyond reading it. Just reading these declarations are wonderful and glorious. And I don't want to tarnish them with my mind and mouth compared to the work of God in giving the words to us. But He's told us, to read in the book and the law of God distinctly and give the sense and cause you to understand the reading. So with that foundation of review of what we've covered so far, let me read to you verses 15 through 23. Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of His calling and what the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of His power to usward who believe, according to the working of His mighty power, which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and set Him at His own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. The Lord will bless the reading of his word and we trust he'll bless the preaching of it. Have mercy upon us, Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ our Lord. What a wonderful passage! This Ephesians chapter 1. Paul is praying that this church, of which he was the pastor for three years, and was already sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, and already had the earnest of that Holy Spirit, would have yet another ministry of that Spirit. That He would increase their knowledge of three things. The hope of their calling, the riches of the glory of their inheritance, and the exceeding greatness of the power that He reached forth to save them. There's two parts to these verses. The first part 
is the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit that we need beyond regeneration, beyond believing the gospel, and beyond being sealed. We want to learn more. We want to feel it in us. We want to see it clearly. We want to embrace its truths. We want to understand its dimensions. We want to know how deep it is, how strong it is, how powerful it is, how rich they are. And so we need spiritual enablement to do that because we still have a carnal, fleshly, earthly nature attached to us that discounts and diminishes the things of God. But we want the Spirit of God to stir us up. And the Apostle Paul in this epistle kept that thought going all the way through it because even chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, that I have read to you many times, he is still praying to the Father of the family of God that He would grant His Spirit after chapter 1 and all that it says, after regeneration in chapter 2, after chapter 2 telling us that the church is the habitation of God through the Spirit, chapter 3, He's praying for the Holy Spirit to show them the dimensions of Christ's love that they might pass knowledge until they're filled with all the fullness of God. There's a knowledge of natural men. They don't know anything. Then there's a knowledge of Christ that we get before baptism, which is minuscule. But it still takes the regenerating power of God for us to believe that. Then after that, we're sealed. Then after that, we want some of these basics explained to us more perfectly inside, through the preaching, through God's Word, the hope of His calling, the riches of our inheritance, and the power of our salvation. Then... We get over to chapter 3 and Paul's still praying for higher ground. Are you with me on this? There's never a reason for a church of Jesus Christ to be content. We want to always be pressing for more. And in chapter 3 there's more. And I bring up chapter 3 to remind you that this is a progression of the apostle. That even this church that he founded, where he spent more time than in any other church as far as we know... He still sought this for them. We must always rightly divide the word of truth. We can't find him praying for the Spirit to come into these Ephesian saints in chapter 3 and think that they weren't born again. We can't read in chapter 5, be filled with the Spirit, and think that they had never been filled with the Spirit. It's an ongoing daily thing that we need to be filled with the Spirit. These Ephesian saints are said to have been quickened from the dead in chapter 2. That means to have been regenerated. But in chapter 5, he says, Awake thou that sleepest and arise from the dead. Now, do those two things mean the same thing? Chapter 2 and chapter 5? Not a chance. In chapter 2, that's our regeneration by the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 5, it's our practical getting out of the doldrums of this life and embracing the spiritual and eternal life that we have in Christ. Sorry that I didn't start with two or three stories about fishing, hunting, and my childhood playing basketball. You know, I just want to get right down to business and so we can get through it and quit. And I mean that in very good terms. Right. Uh, So I just, I don't know any other way to preach. And I'm sorry that I didn't start off with some stories. That uh, there wasn't any need for stories. We just had 50 minutes of great preparation to come right into the Word of God. Okay, verse 15. Wherefore I also. Paul converted the Ephesians to the truth of the gospel, but they needed to hear more. Paul had just declared to them three wonderful sentences in verses 3 through 14, but he wanted them to hear more. He wanted them to know more. He wanted them to understand more. He wanted their understanding enlightened. He wanted the eyes of their understanding to be opened. He wanted to bring some things to light for them. He wanted to magnify those things for them. Wherefore, I also... You know, I'm a stickler for little adverbs, and we we should deal with all of them. What's the also therefore? Did some other man start this church and write them an epistle? And so Paul's saying, wherefore, I also want to write you an epistle? Not a chance. Wherefore I also, not only what I've declared in those three sentences is true, not only what I've taught you in the past that you believed is true, 
I want the Holy Spirit to bless you with a greater level of knowledge and understanding of those things. Wherefore, I also have higher desires for you than just what I've declared and what I taught you in the past. The apostle, and if you were to look at the outline that we have on higher ground, I went through every epistle of the New Testament, especially those of our brother Paul, and called out of them the statements and the implications that the apostles were never content with any church. They wanted to press those churches on. And this is one of those places, and it should grip us. Right. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, Paul's goals for this church were based on the report that they were already good in the basics. Since they had the basics and essentials down, then he could advance into their more deeper spiritual understanding of the hope of their calling, the riches of their inheritance, and the exceeding greatness of God's power that was already exerted on their behalf and would keep them all the way to heaven. There's no power in heaven, earth, or hell that can even hinder the work of God in your salvation. No principality, no name, no might, no throne, no dominion. It didn't matter if we had real political power in this world today, which we don't. Back then they had the political power of Rome. The sentence of death was just a couple syllables in the mouth of Caesar. But there's no might, there's no throne, there's no dominion, there's no name that can touch the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we want to love those things and let them change our lives. Paul had heard that they were doing well. You know, in those days there wasn't social media and there wasn't Twitter and there wasn't texting and cell phones and there wasn't anything. And Paul would have to wait forever to get a message about his beloved saints at Ephesus. But what he heard rejoiced his heart. He heard two things about them. Their faith in the Lord Jesus. He said of the Roman church, your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. He said of this church, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. Does that mean they went around and said, I believe in Jesus? No, it had changed their lives. Because that's how faith is described in the Bible. Faith without works is dead. It's vain. So they had changed lives. Now what kind of a change in life did they have when Paul first met them? They brought all their books of witchcraft together and burned them. And the, the value of that pile of witchcraft books was 50,000 pieces of silver. Now that's faith in the Lord Jesus. Right. Faith in the Lord Jesus should change our lives. Remember, it is the work of faith that's the evidence of election in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Remember, we start with faith and we add to it seven other things in 2 Peter chapter 1. And the apostle is implying and acknowledging that or he wouldn't commend their faith because he wouldn't commend devilish faith, which is what faith is if it doesn't have works. And their love of the saints in verse 15. Love unto all the saints. True Bible faith changes lives. It leads believers to make great sacrifices for the things of the gospel and to endure great trials with calmness. The greatest trait of a Christian, however, is not faith. Faith is usually mentioned first in passages and comparisons like this because it comes first in time. But it's not the most important in value or evidence of a Christian. Love, brotherly love, love of the saints is the greatest trait of a Christian. Jesus said, all men shall know that you're my disciples by the love you have one to another. Paul said, that there were in the church given first of all apostles. Yet show I unto you a more excellent way of serving him. And what is that more excellent way? Loving the brethren. How do you love the brethren? That's why chapter 13 is given to you so that you can find one sentence that covers verses 4 through 7 and has 15 phrases defining brotherly love. Love is that treatment of others that eliminates all problems and strife in a church. There can't be problems. When there's love. It's hate. It's bitterness. It's grudges. It's arrogance. It's pride that causes contentions and fighting. And love doesn't have any of those things. 
And so Paul said, hey, the church is in good shape. Their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love of the brethren. Do you know what Paul would say when he was hassled by Jewish legalists that wanted to add circumcision and the law of Moses to the finished work of Christ? He, he would say in Galatians chapter 5, circumcision or uncircumcision, it doesn't matter. But faith that worketh by love. That is our religion. Faith that worketh by love. Those Jewish legalists had never heard a sermon like that in their lives. All they did was go to school every day from sunup to sundown to hear more and more about the 917 commandments of Moses' law. And they would just revel in those little ceremonial aspects of God, what God gave to Israel that was earthly, sensual, base, poor, weak, beggarly. These are, these are the apostles' words for the Old Testament ceremonial religion. They just reveled in that stuff. Jesus said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, for ye compass land and sea, looking for one more proselyte, and when you get him converted, he's twofold more the child of hell than you are. Right. Oh, I love a Jesus like that. Does, that. does that guy at the door with the long hair, does he ever preach like that? Does the one in a manger, where they still want to put him in a manger every year, preach like that? The what? Yeah. How about the one hanging on a cross? You know that you wear around your neck to scare away evil spirits at night. Does he preach like that? That's what he preached like. But I, I love the answer. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to add to the force of Galatians 5, 6. Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. Learn what the real religion of Jesus Christ is. Faith that worketh by love. So if you want to simplify what you should do this next week, faith that works by love. Faith that changes your life and results in active love and service to other people. It has not, not, not praying for them, not thinking about them, not saying I love the brethren, but it actually goes and does things for them. And so Paul heard this about the church and he was thankful there in that 15th verse. Verse 16, we cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Faith and love by Christians cause ministers to be very thankful for their good people. Paul was often thankful for the obedience of the churches. I thank God, he would say about churches. Let us give thanks to God for obedient Christians and commend them like the Apostle Paul did. Then he says, making mention of you in my prayers. Paul regularly and frequently prayed for the Ephesians, making mention of them. I've used this little expression to help you in your praying. Paul made mention of things in prayer. He uses this expression, making mention in prayer. Here, Romans chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and Philemon chapter 1. When you go and you read some of these expressions, praying always for you, he would say, and you add up all the churches and all the individuals that Paul cared about very much, and you think about his prayer list. You say, how would he ever get through it? He tells you how. Right here, making mention. When, when, a, when you have gone to the Lord in prayer, and you have worshipped Him as you have opened your prayer, that He has all the power to do everything that you need done, and you humble yourself before Him, admitting that you cannot do what needs to be done, then all you need to do is mention the things that He needs to do for you. And, and I'm not talking about a bunch of carnal things. If you go read the prayer requests in the Bible, you know, they're pretty spiritual. They're not about jobs. They're not about money. They're not about houses. They're not about health. They're about spiritual things. Right. Because if we put the spiritual things first, He and His gracious kindness will take care of all the rest. Is there an example in the Bible of proving that? Can anyone think of an example in the Bible where you put spiritual things first and God just pours out on... Did I hear an S word? Solomon! Solomon! He prayed for a wise and understanding heart so that he could take good care of God's people, which is a very spiritual prayer request. What did God add to him? 
riches, the necks of his enemies, and a long life if he would continue in obeying him. And seek ye first the kingdom of God, and God will take care of all the rest. We always we want to put spiritual things first. It is part of the higher ground. It is part of us improving ourselves to be more like the Apostle Paul, who is the pattern for all great New Testament Christians. He'll take care of all those other things. The richest men in the Bible were the men who loved God most, not the brightest men. The Bible says very plainly that the race is not to the swift, the battle isn't to the strong, and riches are not to men of understanding. Do I need to say that again? Riches are not to men of understanding, but time and chance is ruled by the God of heaven. And He gives to those that He loves and delights in, He loves and delights in those who love Him. And so if you want to get ahead, there's some basic things you ought to be doing, like getting up on time, and getting to work on time, and doing a good job, and so forth and so on, and all that has been taught in lesser sermons. But you should love the Lord thy God, you should walk with Him every day, live for Him, And delight in Him. He'll take care of everything else. And so we have here in verse 15, verse 16 I mean, verse 16, I cease not to give thanks for you. I thank God for you Ephesians because you have changed lives by your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ of whom I am an ambassador in bonds at this time in Roman prison making mention of you in my prayers. I pray for you and I make mention. You need not describe all the details for the Lord. That isn't fervency. Fervency is passionate pleading with Him, begging Him, imploring Him, crying out to Him that without His help you cannot do it. And you need Him to exert Himself on your behalf. Now that's fervency. It's not adding all these details. He knows more details than you could ever come up with about any prayer request that you bring. He he knows them all. The Bible already says the Lord knows what you have need of before you ask Him. You say, well, why do I need to ask? Because He's told you to ask. And He says you have not because you ask not. He says, well, if He already knows, why does He He want? It's an act of worship. It's an act of humility. It's an act of exalting Him that He's the one that can give good gifts and you can't get them yourself. You're the one admitting that he's in charge of time and chance. I mean, it's just, it's just full. Prayer is private, personal worship, and he loves it. Lord, I do not know you as I ought to know you. Please reveal yourself to me. Glorify thyself to me. Glorify thyself through me. Give me the strength to lay aside the weights and the sin that does easily beset me. Help me to get through today. Shut my mouth, rule my spirit, guard my tongue. He'll hear you. Peter said, Lord, save me. Did he reach forth his hand? Did he say he was of little faith? Yeah, I'll take both. Will you take both? You have little faith, but he reached forth his hand and took Peter, who was sinking under those boisterous waves. When God said, pray without ceasing in the Bible, when Paul wrote, pray without ceasing in the Bible, does that mean you need to be praying all the time? You need to spend hours on your knees? You need to be crawling in a monastery someplace? Do you need to be thumbing 165 beads, a, a chain of 55 three times to get through the rosary of the Catholic Church? Does it mean anything like that? What? None. None. It just means don't quit. Don't quit. Don't give up. It means that if you haven't got an answer today, you leave another message on the answering machine of the unjust judge. Except he's not unjust, and he's not just our judge. He's our Heavenly Father. Jesus said, pray after this manner. Jesus said, did you hear what the unjust judge saith? This woman is going to drive me crazy, so I will avenge her of her adversaries. Jesus said, did you hear what he said? How did that widow woman get the attention of a judge that feared not God and didn't fear man. Did you like Jesus Christ's thorough description of that unjust judge? Our Father in Heaven isn't anything like that unjust judge. So we just go to Him when it's our time of prayer. Does it say in the Bible there were times of prayer? Does it say Peter and John went up to the temple at the hour of prayer? So they didn't pray all day and they were apostles. You know, when you read about these Catholic mystics and stuff that go sit in some stone prison that they've designed for themselves called a monastery or a convent, 
don't be convicted or condemned. Get up and do something. Get up and love your spouse. That's something they don't have. Send your spouse a text that'll light them up. You'll be way ahead. I like this. Thank you, Lord, for telling us in these little tiny ways in in various places how to pray. Making mention of you in my prayers. Verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Why were you saved? I sent it to you yesterday in the preparatory email. John chapter 17, verses 1 through 3. Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Why does the universe exist with thinking, rational creatures like you and me? For God to display himself too, that you can know an infinite being, infinite in every measure. And God was very kind to us a few years back in a series called Knowing God, in which we broke numerous attributes of God into four great sections. All glory to God. There's nothing like it on the internet. There is nothing like it in any systematic theology. They barely get past the first section. Go get any systematic theology you want. Go online and search them all. The Lord was very gracious to us because he is revealing himself to us. He doesn't reveal himself to us in visions in your bedroom. He doesn't reveal himself to us in cloud formations or the belly hair of a caterpillar. I'm mocking the farmer's almanac. He reveals himself to us through his word, and he's been very kind to us. But I want you to see that this prayer of Paul in verse 17 is that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's the true and living God, he's the Father of glory because he's infinite in all of his attributes. He's praying that this God would give these Ephesian saints that already had the presence of the Spirit. They were already born again. They already knew the things that Paul himself had taught them, but they could grow in wisdom and revelation in knowing God better. This is my desire for you. I want you to know God better, to love Him more, to live for Him more faithfully, to embrace His perfections, to have total confidence in the face of any difficulty, even at the hour of death, To know that there is power waiting to receive you. There is shocking. They called it shock and awe. Shock and awe. For firecrackers dropped in the Middle East. Shock and awe, huh? You know, Iraq just kept right on living just like they did before. I wonder what they shocked and what they awed. Shock and awe. I'll tell you about shock and awe. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Abraham and David got up out of cemeteries in their bodies and walked into Jerusalem and knocked on doors. Are you the Jehovah's Witnesses? No, I'm Abraham. Let me in. Can you believe that? It's in the Word of God. Was there an earthquake? There was a great earthquake. What happened to Roman guards? Paralyzed. What happened to a stone? Rolled out of the way. Who, who in here has seen a dead body up close and personal in the last five years? Just how much power is in it? How much ability is in it? How much energy is resident there? When Jesus asked Martha and Mary to roll the stone away from their brother's tomb, what did they say? Don't do the Lord. He's been corrupting for three or four days now. Don't don't ask that. He is going to stink bad. I mean, in one minute, the change. 
is drastic, isn't it? There is no energy. There's no animating force. There's no power. There's nothing. But I'll tell you what, that body that was laid in that tomb didn't look like anything like the bodies that you have seen put away. Right. That, that body had its face mashed in, brow all torn up, beard ripped out, nails through it. It was white and ghastly white and gray. I love the doctrine of the gospel. The yeah. apostles had to be eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus Christ to be an apostle because they went everywhere and said, we have seen Jesus of Nazareth alive. Right. He ate and he drank with us. We touched him. Wait till the second assembly in my opening verses. When Jesus said, touch me not to Mary. We need the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, that we would love these things more and they would change our lives. He will show himself to us. So you can see in verse 17 that the last three words are knowledge of him. The goal is knowledge of God. It's knowing God and what he wants to display about himself to us by saving us. He wants you to know him. That is an incredible thought. We are his rebel enemies. Why would he want us to know him? He wants to display his greatness. And I hope that you want to know him more. And I hope that you'll pray to know him more. And I hope that we as a church will pray that our church will know him more. This is what it's all about. It's to know God more. So that we might glorify him. He's made all things for himself. He's made everything for his pleasure. And his pleasure comes in us knowing and praising him for the glory of his grace for the riches of his inheritance, and for the exceeding greatness of his power. On the cross, our Lord Jesus Christ looked very weak. He was in a state of humiliation so that he would come down and die for us. They mocked him. They smashed his face in. He didn't say a word. They marveled that he wouldn't answer under such duress. Stripped naked, made fun of, and he died early. Sooner than the two thieves. They had their legs broken. Jesus was already dead. If you've been up close to a corpse in, the la in recent time and you're smart enough and you took the time when you weren't a little infant or a foolish nitwit and afraid of the casket, excuse me, I'm sorry, but you need to get up close to death. You need to get right up and touch it. But God raised him from the dead. That is the message of the gospel throughout. Ye with wicked hands have crucified the Lord of glory, but God raised him from the dead. There was thundering power. There was awe and shock in Judea. Earthquake. People came out of their tombs. Vaults flew open. Stones rolled away from sepulchers. Out they came. Dead corpses for hundreds of years, thousands of years, walked the streets of Jerusalem. The stone rolled away. And that gray, ghastly body of the Lord Jesus Christ with wounds all over it, a spear hole in its side, drained of His blood, leaped to its feet as the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ re-entered it. And He walked out into that garden with the power and force of the Son of God. He could have split that world wide open. He could have destroyed the Roman Empire in an instant of time, dropping fire from heaven like he did upon Sodom and Gomorrah. But instead he had this word. Mary, that's our Savior. Do you know Him? Do you know Him in His power? So, I wish I knew how to preach to you empty myself of the beauty of these verses in writing that God's given to us. I thank God that He's given me existence for one thing, to know Him. Amen. To know Him. And I want to know Him better, and I want you to know Him better with me. Amen. I want Him to change our lives. I want our church to be a church that knows Him and walks with Him and delights in Him every day. So we should get to verse 17. 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love Paul's choice of name dropping, word dropping. Love Paul's choice of words identifying God and Jesus Christ and in his inspired writings throughout the New Testament. Why doesn't he just say that God, that God would grant you the spirit of wisdom? He loves to just drop names and words to lift up his God and Savior, Jesus Christ, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, because he was Jesus Christ's God, and Jesus Christ was that God's Son. There is a relationship there that is inseparable and mighty and it's powerful and glorious and it separates our God from every other God. If you'll bring the name of Jesus up, you'll find out that not very many people believe in God. If you just talk about God all the time, they don't know if you're talking about Allah or the great spirit of the buffalo chip smoked Indians of the plains of the United States. They don't know what you're talking about. What are you talking about? I believe in God. How about God the Father? I've mentioned this before, but you know what? I can't get away from it because everywhere we turn, Paul just keeps dropping it over and over. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, that is our God. That's the true and living God. He's the Father of glory because our God is the fountain giver of all glory. He has all glory in himself. He's infinitely perfect, independent of all other creatures and supports and helps. He is the Father of glory. This Father and God gives understanding from the riches of His glory. Look at chapter 3 and verse 14. You shouldn't have to turn very far. Let's get look at this name dropping of the Apostle. I love the Apostle Paul's writing, and you should too, if you have the Spirit of God in you, because Paul had the Spirit of God in him. Verse 14 of chapter 3, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, you've told us that several times. Why does this keep coming up? Because it's a glorious thought. That the man Christ Jesus had a father in heaven that delivered him from the power of the tomb by the spirit of holiness. And you have a father in heaven that will deliver you from the tomb by the power of the spirit of God that will raise you up from the dead just like he raised up your older brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom you are connected as close as a spirit is connected to a body, as close as a husband is connected to a wife. We are bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. He shall never lose a single one of them. We are the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Love it. Death shouldn't move you. Death is to go through a curtain into His presence. Look forward to it. Help me to look forward to it. I'll help you to look forward to it. Lord, help us all to look forward to it. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words, saith the Spirit of God through Paul. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, chapter 3 and verse 14, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts, verse 18, that you might be able to comprehend some things, verse 19, that you might know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. Now all this is predicated in the fact that it's according to the riches of His glory in verse 16. So we come back to chapter 1, and He's called the Father of Glory. Because it's according to the riches of His glory. He's able to speak the Word and give wisdom. He's able to speak the Word and give the Spirit of revelation and knowing God. The Spirit is not capitalized here, and I love that fact, so that skeptics have something to grab a piece of rope off the hardware of God's Word, hardware shelf of God's Word, and hang themselves. Because all you have to do is read a King James Bible to find out that sometimes words and pronouns referring to deity, nouns, pronouns referring to deity, are not capitalized. You know, when we go to Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God isn't capitalized, it's a little W. Do we know what the Word of God is in Hebrews 4.12? It's the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, mentioned in verses 13, 14, and through the end of that chapter. We go to Isaiah 7.14, Therefore a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. Do you think it's capitalized? No, it isn't. Verse Isaiah 9.6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. Do we know who the verse is talking about? Is Son capitalized? No, it's not capitalized. I have a whole list of them, but it's not worth going through right now. I just enjoy finding these and then reading skeptics who are so stupid and ignorant, they don't know how Greek was written, they don't know how English was written, they don't know when rules were established for the capitalization of titles of deity, 
And so they don't know. All they want to do is pick on the Word of God, and they don't have any better solution or understanding of anything late, before, now, or then, in the future. I thank God for the written Word of God. And the Spirit here is the Holy Spirit, because that is the Spirit that is spoken of throughout this epistle. First, the context proves it's the Spirit because it is the Spirit of wisdom and revelation. You can't be the object of revelation and the source of revelation. This is someone else being the source of revelation for you to be the object of that revelation. So we just look at the verse itself and it tells us it's the Holy Spirit of God. And then we read the rest of the book like I showed you last Lord's Day, and I'm not going to repeat that, especially the passage that I just read was over there in chapter 3 where it says that God was to be prayed by the Apostle Paul that they would be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man, and there the Spirit is capitalized. You say it looks contradictory. No, it's just to give men something to trip over. The whole Bible's written that way. God's always done things that way. Do I need to mention a P word again to help you remember that? What is the P word that I'm going to mention to help you that Jesus Christ and God does things in certain ways to cause men to trip up? Parables. Why did he speak in parables? To cause men to trip up and not to know what he was talking about. Why was the Tower of Babel? Because there he confounded the languages of men. If you don't come to God the way that this epistle and the other epistles teach, you will not know him. Jesus said, If any man will do his will, speaking of the Father, John 7 and verse 17, If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine. Whether I speak of myself or I speak of God. I love that verse. If you don't obey to the degree, you do not obey the things that God has revealed to you, you will not know God. Do you know what that means about every single thing we do every day? Every single time I do not treat my wife the way that I should treat my wife. Every single time I allow any kind of a thought that is not pleasing to God, I am cutting myself off from the further revelation of God by His Spirit. It should cause us to want to be meticulous and careful and perfect in all of our ways so that He will pour out upon us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. If we allow this to merely be your human agency, energy, or influence, then human genius takes over. And human genius has never accomplished anything. That's why we're still dying at the same age that we have been since Moses. As it's written in Psalm 90, that uh, the life expectancy is 70, three score and 10, and if by reason of strength, 80. If you just do a little bit of extrapolation from the average being most men dying at 70 and strong people dying at 80, then life expectancy is 77. Do you know what it is today? You guessed it, if you're guessing. It's 77. You know, everybody knows that Psalm 90 was written about 1000 B.C., the earliest record they have of it. It was practically written 2000 B.C. by Moses. But if it was written 1000 B.C. because it got included in the Jewish book of Psalms, it still had life expectancy perfectly defined for us. We're nothing. This is, this is God the Holy Spirit that enlightens men. Greek doesn't use upper or lowercase letters for deity in any of the three persons. There are other capitalization differences throughout the Bible. Those rules were not firmly established at the time of 1611. And I love them for being there anyway because just by a little bit of Bible comparison, you can know that the son in Isaiah 7.14 that came forth from a virgin was a capitalized son. And there are other places that are not quite as strong and the and son is capitalized. Thank you, Lord. The Spirit is the one that reveals gospel mysteries and his spiritual words by preaching. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Remember, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. What spirit do you think we're talking about? His Spirit. Is it your Spirit? Is it some Spirit of inspiration of the human genius. It's God the Holy Spirit. And we thank Him for that. And it's what Paul prayed for. 
and it's what we want. Unless God reveals truth as he did to Peter, you cannot know anything right. Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Jesus to his apostles, Matthew chapter 16. Well, some think you're Elijah. Some think you're Jeremiah. Some think you're John the Baptist. Pardon my rough roughness. I'm not going to get over it, so just pardon me. <laughs> what a bunch of idiots. I speak of the Jews. Do you know how many miracles he had performed? Right. Do, you know, do you know that they had a timeline right down to the year when he was going to arrive? Of events that they were far more familiar with than we are, and we know exactly when he arrived? Well, who do you say that I am? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, Peter, but my Father which is in heaven. Do you want to know the Lord Jesus Christ? We want the Father to reveal him to us. Do you want to know the Father? Let Jesus Christ reveal him to you. How do they both operate? By the Holy Spirit of God. Mm -hmm. Are we going to pray in our second service for more of the Holy Spirit? You bet we are. And you better make sure that it's included in your prayers so that we might know him that knows us and foreknew us. Well, we got through verse 17. Let's read these three verses again. I'll read them to you. Verse 15, Wherefore, I also. I'm not content with just declaring those things in verses 3 through 14 to you. Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And he is going to go on and list three things. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Do we ever use expressions or metaphors like the light went on? We do. And that's what, these are metaphors right here. Your understanding doesn't really have eyeballs. But now I see it. Well, you've been looking at it the whole time, but now I see it. What do you mean? Now I understand it. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. The light bulb was turned on inside. Well, the Lord's able to do that. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Three things. That ye may know what. And you could circle the three what's if you wanted to. That ye may know what. So we're going to get answers to three questions. What is the hope of His glory? What is the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? What is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe. These are the three what's that Paul wanted the Holy Spirit given to this Ephesian church that they might know these three what's and their answers better. That the eyes of their understanding would be enlightened. That they would know these things. That they would know God. And what kind of a hope he has set before us in the gospel and in the future phase of our salvation. And the riches of the glory of that inheritance that we're going to have in Jesus Christ. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe. And then we'll look at the great example of that power. And that was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Where he is now. And why he is there for us. He's there for the church. That's why it says, God's put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. He's there for us. He intercedes for us daily. He'll not lose a single one of us. And we're the fullness of him that filleth all in all. And he fills us with every good thing that we ever need by his spirit if we are living obediently. May God help us to do that. Amen.